Five scores! Rick Five. We decided to get ourselves back in the game again with our podcast. Rick Five. Probably the craziest story that you're ever going to hear about hockey. We're going to be coming back to you on a regular basis. You are listening to Squid and the Ultimate Leafs fan. Hello, Canada and hockey fans of the United States and Newfoundland. And an extra big hello to Canadian servicemen overseas. Welcome, everyone, to episode 65 of the Squid and Ultimate Leaf Fan Show. I'm Mike Wilson, the Ultimate Leafs fan. Joining me, as always, my winger, Ricky Squid Vibe. Squid, how's things? Oh, I can't complain, Michael. I mean, uh, you know, we're supposed to get a lot of rain in the next, few day, next couple of days, so probably no golf, but I can relax and I can uh, take it easy. Well, that's good. And hockey season's around the corner, so what all's good with the life again and uh, in the world. So we'll we'll see how things all yeah. unfold as that all starts, actually starts in the next couple of days. So, well, our guest today was taken third overall by the Detroit Red Wings in the 1979 draft. Two spots in front of you, by the way, mister. Uh, yeah. <laughs> he enjoyed a 15-year career, played 1,018 games, scored 355 goals, 372 assists, also 2,000 penalty minutes with stops in Buffalo, Toronto, and Florida, but probably best known for his goal celebration, the Felino Leap, which Maple Leaf fans really enjoyed one night. Please welcome to the Screen Ultimate Leap Fan Show, Mike Felino. Mike, thanks for joining us, and how you doing? Very well, Mike. Thank you for the introduction. How you doing, Rick? <laughs> I'm good, Mike. Good. Hey, yeah, uh, Mike. It- he, he, he had to throw in there that you went two spots ahead of me, right? You know, in the draft. Right? The draft pick is only, a, is only a number, Rick. Look what you did with your career. Oh, my God. You outshot all of us. Hey, Mike, you got to give yeah. that to every chance I can get a shot at him. We got to take a shot at him. Okay? Oh, yeah, for sure. <laughs> so, um, now, so how have you been spending your time through this whole crazy thing we've been going through the last two years? What's your involvement in hockey these days? You know what? I've been doing some work with uh, Hockey Canada, the men's uh, Paralympic team, and um, it's it's been difficult, obviously, trying to get together and trying to stay ahead of the curve here with regards to preparing for the Olympics uh, in March, the Winter Olympics in Beijing. Uh, but as a as a staff, our director uh, Marshall Starkman and our and our head coach uh, Ken Babby and and, and uh, the work of our players, uh, everybody's been kind of re- reuniting with the, you know, computer, the internet, uh, yeah. Zoom calls, a lot of Zoom calls, a lot of team yeah. calls. Uh, and um, and we've been able to get together, you know, um, three times. We've had a world championship uh, in Ostrava, Czech. Um, we've had a couple of uh, selection camps. Uh, so we've had a couple of training camps where we've been able to get together. Our recent, most recent one was two weeks ago in Calgary, and uh, we were able to select um, 20 players out of the uh, training camp that we feel are the the players that can take us to uh, to a gold medal. How many players would you be choosing from? What would that pool of players be, just for? The listeners, listeners well because of of covid it's it's down quite a bit uh, we had to trim it down uh so we invited almost i think 30 30 players to the camp and out of that we were able to select 20 and out of the 20 by by january we're going to be down to 17. is that what you carry 17 players in the paralympics yeah we'll we'll carry 17 uh, we'll play 15 uh because um 
Uh, there's a 15-minute period, three 15-minute period, stop time. Uh, but uh, our, our players you know, are well-conditioned. They uh, have you know, a little bit longer shifts in, in an NHL game, but uh, it's all upper body because they're in their their, uh, their sled, you know, and, and so it's a lot of upper body work. Uh, and if anyone is, you know, as they, if anyone has never seen a pair of hockey game, I, I hope you get a chance because uh, these guys are really talented. Um, I, I feel watching some of my players sometimes, Rick and Mike, that um, we've got some guys that can actually be on the ice in a practice with an NHL team and not look out of place once they get get into the drills. Yeah, it's funny. It's funny you're involved in that, Mike. I, I remember when they had the Invictus Games here, I believe, and I went down. I I did a thing with uh, or I coached one of the the uh, sledge hockey teams. Uh, I think it was Tom Ferguson and myself. But we went on the ice beforehand on those sled and tried to. I mean, I got to tell you, that is one of the most difficult things you could probably try. Trust me, it is not easy. Those guys are unbelievable, the way that they can do things and the way they can shoot the puck. I mean, my hat's off to those players that can play that because, boy, it was hard. Well, you know, the biggest thing for us as coaches is uh, the love of the game. You know, the players that have the love of the game don't always have two legs. Uh, some of them have one. Some of them have lost their legs. Um, and, and these disabilities, we have to give them the opportunities to continue to play a sport that they, they, they loved or that they fell in love with. Um, and it gives them opportunity to be a part of something bigger than themselves. And, and that's what this is really all about to a certain degree. The, the fact that they get to work with their teammates, they learn about what it's like to be on a team. They learn how to be a professional. Uh, we have, we have uh, players from all over Canada, every province. We have um, players that have lost a limb in the war. We have soldiers. We have p players that have lost limbs to accidents, uh, players that have lost limbs to uh, disease, you know, cancer. Mm -hmm. uh, a couple of them in their, in their junior draft year, you know, uh, were diagnosed with cancer. And, you know, you just you, you can't imagine your own family going through something like this, let alone and have – actually have happening and then rebounding from it to continue to play. And thank God that we have this pair of sport to allow them the opportunity to play. Well, it's funny because um, one of the things in this as my wife and I were involved is we worked with can fund who was a supporter of Canadian Olympic athletes. And some of the sledge hockey players were recipients of some of the funding that we helped raise for them over the years. And we've met a number of the players who've come to some of the events we used to host at our place. And, uh, I can tell you these guys are as motivated as any hockey player I've ever seen in my life. So uh, oh, the money's being well spent on these guys, let me tell you. Well, that's great to hear, Mike. I mean, uh, any kind of funding that we can get to help uh, the players and the programs and even allow the younger kids that, you know, unfortunately have these kinds of things happen, uh, the opportunity. Um, you know, our, our players, as much as, you know, we say that they have disabilities, it's all about being a professional. It's all about being the best especially at our level, um, you know, their compete level is, is incredibly high. And sometimes, you know, um, you know, you talk about professionalism, you talk about the NHL, and you can almost wish that some of the players in the NHL can see how hard these guys train, how hard these guys work, because, 
I mean, their their dedication would would go through the roof if they they saw how how much players with 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 you know within our group uh, work to get to just to get on the ice at times. Well, it's something we think. Well, I played uh, I played with, uh, and I don't know if he's still there, but he he was the captain of the team from Oakville. McGregor, um, Tyler McGregor, or uh, Billy I can't Bridges. Remember his name, but Billy Bridges. He. No, not Billy. Uh, I think you're talking. Anyway, about this guy worked. Wrestling. He worked out at uh, with my son. Anyway, we had a leaf uh, thing before the Canadian Open, like a pro am. So it was three people with a leaf uh, alumni, and one of the pros. So that was a year that the British Open went through a Monday, and a lot of the players didn't get back in time. So they brought in like Brooke Henderson and a few other people and they brought him in and he was in our group. Now he's got through prosthetic legs and other than taking a cart down into the valley and back up the valley, he walked 18 holes and he could hit a golf ball too. So I, I had a blast. I had a blast playing with him and watching him, you know, and I thought, you know what, this is amazing to, to watch this guy with two prosthetic legs walking the golf course and hitting the ball the way he was. It was, it was a real treat. That sounds, that sounds like Greg Westlake. That's who, yeah, that's who it is. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Avid golfer loves the game and so competitive. Well, that's, I mean, that's great to hear Mike uh, to keep up the great work on that. And uh, you know, listen, anything we can ever do to help promote that going forward, please let us know. We're always happy to get behind that. And Let's talk about you. Um, I, I think you were born in Sudbury, started hockey at 10. While in, not old in most countries, in Canada, it'd be a bit late. But because you had a small detour at an early age playing another sport before you pick up hockey, uh, maybe you want to tell that one to the listeners. Uh, well, I was born in, in Sudbury. And then a couple of years after, I was, well, three years after I was born, uh, we moved to Italy moved back to Italy as a, a just my, my father stayed back in Canada. We couldn't afford really to, to live here. The jobs weren't plentiful. They were on and off. So we had our home in Italy. So we went back to Italy for a while and then ended up obviously playing soccer. And, uh, you know, a, a soccer ball wasn't um, sometimes readily available. So we put some twine around some clothing, just wrap some clothing in a ball and just start kicking the ball of clothing around. <laughs> Uh, so, so you, you learn to really manage, you know, the footwork um, and uh, you know the stamina and so on to 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 play that kind of a game and in that kind of a situation. But uh, uh, so I, I think you know you pick up some some cross training of sorts with playing different sports and then coming back to Canada uh, when I was almost six years old. Um, everybody around me obviously was was playing hockey and my first pair of skates my my cousin my older cousin gave me and. Uh, they didn't fit very well, but I uh, stuff them, stuff them like everybody else, probably with socks and stuff. And um, and next thing you know, you're you're on skates. So uh, that's that's kind of how the career started. But it, it did take a detour. You're right. Yeah. So, yeah, so talk, talk about, about the early years leading up to the Providence team. Those were the days the local team could protect a few players, I believe. It, believe it or not, it was the last year of the protection. So. Uh, the reason why they had the protection is uh, to keep some of the local players local and, uh, you know, home. So it was great for, you know, the the attendance and, and so on, families being able to watch their kids play at a junior level. But uh, 
what happened was like teams like Toronto, you know, the Kitcheners, the bigger cities mm-hmm. had a, a larger mass of, of players to draw from, a larger group of players to draw, draw from. And so uh, they, they got the pick of the, the, the crop and, and uh, the, the cream of the crop, I should say. And uh, so they, they changed the rule, but that rule came in after my draft, my junior draft. So I believe it was myself and uh, uh, John Walker, or, or I know Ron Duguay was also in that the mix the year before. Uh, so we were, we were actually able to be a part of or to start with a, a group of players that a lot of them were from Sudbury. I think we had the most Sudbury players in, in the league at one time. Uh, or in the, of their own town at one time. I think we had 10 on our team. So it was awesome to have that many local players being on the team at the same time in junior hockey. It hardly ever happens. Yeah, that would be. Yeah, no, not that. Yeah, that would be something that would be pretty rare. But so what was it like, you know, staying at home, yeah. getting to play in your hometown? And uh, I mean, it must have been unbelievable. You know what, Rick? It had to be that way for me because uh, and everyone's different. I mean, growing up, uh, you know, everyone's home life is different. Uh, my father passed away when I was ten years old, so if I, I think if I would have had to be drafted to go out of town, I don't know if we could afford that as a family. And uh, so it allowed me personally to stay home, help around the house with my family. Um, you know, them not having to travel great distances. We didn't have a car. My older sister just got a car the year later. Um, you know, so we really couldn't afford to travel and go anywhere else. And, and for me, it, it was a blessing in disguise that everything just kind of fell into place like that. And, and sometimes you got to be lucky to be good. And I, I, I feel for in my situation, I got lucky with being able to, to stay home. Well, Sudbury is pretty lucky too because you sure it up your last year playing in Sudbury. So your draft year, was there any buzz throughout the year that you were going to get taken? Uh, you know what? The, I think, Rick, you guys were uh, – the group of players uh, went to the Birmingham Bulls, I think, the year before, year or two before. Yeah. Uh, and Gretzky, he was just – he had just left. And, and so in my year, I mean, you know, it, it seemed like I wasn't – in the in the midst of of that class of players that that you know especially with guys you know great players like Rick that left, so um, you know it was a, maybe a little bit more of a of a of a watered down um, you know last year you know draftable player, but that was also the year that they opened up the draft to the eighteen year olds, and that was also the year of the merger between the WHA WHL sorry the W WHA uh, WHA and the NHL. So there was a lot of things that, that kind of went down in that year. So not only were they drafting our 19-year-old group, but then they're starting to look at the 18-year-old group. And so the 19-year-old group was almost cut in half because a lot of teams wanted to go with a younger player that was available in the draft and that we were, they were they were believing that could, could be a great player. And my draft, uh, Dale Hunter ended up going. Well, let me tell you this. You're being a little bit modest, Mike, because – we normally don't do this, but I, I am purposely going to read this list to you. Here are the top 20 picks from that 1979 draft. And here they are in order. Rob Ramage, Perry Turnbull, you, Mike Gardner, Squid, Craig Hartsburg, Keith Brown, Ray Bork, Lori Boschman, Tom McCarthy, Mike Ramsey, Paul Reinhardt, Doug Sullivan, Brian Propp, Brad McCrimmon, Jay Wells, Dwayne Sutter, Ray Allison, 
Jimmy Mann, number 20, Michelle Goulet. And just for good measure, some slug by the name of Kevin Lowe went 21st. Oh, and by the way, he won six cups and was in the, and was in the Hockey Hall of Fame. <laughs> that has to be the strongest. And then we asked, check with Paul Patskow. That has to be the strongest draft in the history of the NHL. Sounds like a Stanley Cup winning team right there. Holy moly. That yeah. is unbelievable <laughs> if you think about that. So you guys were in pretty good company. So it's good when you're talking about being taken fifth, look at the company you're with. Oh, I, hey, I had no problem with going fifth. And I and I can tell you something, too, about the, the merger uh, prompted. Michelle Goulet was already going to Quebec regardless one way or the other. It was it was a it was an unwritten thing in in the merger that everybody else was going to pass on him and Quebec City was going to get him because that's where he played junior with the Ramparts. So uh, that was one of the things that transpired during that draft because of the merger. So and it was in August and it was a full draft. So um, yeah. I can't even remember the date, but it was in August. I know that. So. Well yeah. So, Mike, after you get drafted, what's your expectations heading to your first pro, first pro camp? And what surprised you the most after a few days playing against these guys, the pro level? Well, you know what? When when I got drafted, I you know, Ted Lindsay called and, and uh, uh, God rest his soul and uh, just told me basically, just come ready to play. You know, we want, to, we want you to be yourself. You come here ready to make our team. And so nobody told me I couldn't make the team. So mm -hmm. I... You know, so I, so I ended up going to camp with the mindset, I'm going to make this team. And and nothing changed, nothing swayed me. I mean, you know, your 19-year-old guy, as is, is everyone that's been drafted knows that, you know, you're going up against men. Uh, you're going up to take a man's job away. That's not easy to do, you know. And, and anyone that thinks that's an easy uh, job has, um, has something else coming to them because uh, there's nobody that's willing to give up an NHL job once they have it. Uh, it's, it's, it's a very hard position to get, um, and, and you have to fight tooth and nail sometimes to get it. Uh, sometimes you don't get it on the first try. Sometimes you got to keep trying for years. And, um, you know, I think it, it's, it's all in your will. It's all in your determination. It's all in your preparation. And uh, like I said, nobody – I didn't realize I couldn't make the team. I, and so I, that's probably why I made it. Nobody ever said, Mike, there's no way you're going to make the team in the first year. Uh, I had to win my spot. I had to earn my stripes. And, uh, you know, I, I just remember the support I got around me. I had some great guys around me. Dale McCourt was my centerman. He was a tremendous junior player and had a great start in his, his uh, NHL career. Um, then Peter Mahovlich was my centerman. Uh, Errol Thompson was my winger for a while, um, you know, John O'Grodnick. Uh, yeah, so I had some pretty good people around me that uh, really, really worked hard to make me a, a pro. I remember first month of my career, I couldn't put a pass on Pete Mahomich's stick. I was just so nervous playing with Pete Mahomich. And, and he had such a great reach and, and such a long, long skates that he always found a way to make my bad pass look good. And he always, and that, and that's, I always give him credit. He kept me in the league the first month of my career. Well, uh. you, I, you got off to a pretty good start, I would say. You had two hat tricks, I think, and a penalty shot in the first half of the year, did you not, before you scored 36 goals that first year? Yeah, it, it was a very fortunate start, for sure. Um, you know, I, I just kept doing some of the things that I was doing in junior. Uh you know, getting in those spots, getting the shots away. Um, 
you know, one of the things that you realize at the NHL level is you, sometimes you get into those spots uh, and, and it's a habit, you know, you kind of get that area of the ice and you find the net. But the NHL, you know, you got great players. And so you can get in those spots over and over again, but you have to just refine your skills to the point where you get so accurate with your shot. And one of the greatest shooters in the game is, is right beside you here, Rick, Rick Vive. And that's, you know, just an incredible shooter. And, uh, you know, I remember watching Rick with the Leafs and I ended up playing with Rick in Buffalo, uh, just a tremendous shooter. And, and one of those guys that we talk about, you know, you, it, you can make it a habit of getting into the shooting, you know, parts of the ice and getting your shot away, but you, you develop the skill by perfecting it. And that's what, you know, guys like Rick and Michel Goulet and, you know, and so on down the list of scorers uh, were able to do. Squid. Squid. Yeah, well, it is something that you have to work at. Uh, you know, I mean, you know, I, I I did it my whole life. We always had an outdoor rink. Um, sometimes it was only big enough to shoot. And, uh, you know, that was just the way it was. But, I mean, I was out there day after day after day shooting pucks like crazy. Uh, I broke a few windows, unfortunately. In fact, <laughs> it was, I got I got a great story. I was in PEI in Charlottetown, so I broke a window of the lady's house next door, and she wasn't very happy about it. So my dad flooded the ice that night, and the next day came out. Well, what she had done is she had put a whole bunch of tea bags in water and boiled them. And then went out and threw all the tea bags on the ice after he flooded it. So they all stuck into the ice. And when you scrape them off, all the tea would go everywhere. <laughs> and it was it kind of kind of ruined the ice for for a little while. But then my dad worked everything out with her, and, and uh, everything was okay after that. <laughs> That's pretty good. Now, Mike, so you're, you're you're coming from a small town, Sudbury. I mean, it's a fairly good size, but still small town, Sudbury. You moved to a new country, bigger city. NHL, lots of legends around you. That must have been a big adjustment for a 19-year-old kid. Yeah, I mean, I look back now and I, I you know, knowing what I know now and, and seeing the things that have happened over the years, you know, you got, you know, great examples like, uh, you know, um, Sidney Crosby going to, to Pittsburgh. Yep. He lives with Mario Lemieux. You know, you, you hear of situations like this over and over again with young players coming in. Pierre Turgeon, he lived with another uh, one of my teammates when he when he first came to Buffalo. Um, and, and you know what? With the Jacques Cloutier, I think. And, um, you know, players like that nowadays, they're so young coming into the league. They don't know all the expectations. They they Some of them have never lived on their own before. Some of them have never cooked their own meals. You know, even at 18, 19 years old, let's face it, you know, you, you get stuff handed down to you uh, or done for you. And uh, so I, I almost wish going back that that could have happened to me, you know, where, hey, you know what, Mike, we, we don't want you to live on your own. We want you to live with a family and, you know, one of the players. And I, and I think that that would have really helped me you know, just, uh, I, I don't know if I should say the word appreciate things more, but just uh, be more uh, patient yeah. with, with you know, the whole uh, getting to the NHL mentality because you're, you're, you're there sometimes and you're trying to experience the whole thing. You know, you're going out at night and you're not eating well and, and that kind of thing. So, you know, I, I think that, 
if teams are to do it right and you've got a young player coming in, there's nothing wrong with a young player living with a, a veteran on the team to, to learn the ropes, to learn the discipline way and what it takes to really be a professional. Even though they're a great player and junior, they're not a pro yet. And, and being a pro is totally different than being a, a, one of the best players in junior. Greg, can you add to that? Yeah, it's, it's funny you mention that because I, I when I first got to Vancouver, uh, well, actually Birmingham in the WHA, you know, we lived together, a couple of players, young players, and I, I tend to agree with you on that, Mike, for sure. There's no question that, you know, you're coming out of junior, uh, you know, like I look at my son who went the college route and he took a cooking course in his senior year. And now he's like self-sufficient. He can cook for himself. He, you know, he, he matured a lot more going to college for four years and coming out in, at 22 years old, going in, into pro hockey instead of, uh, uh, you know, 19 or 18 or, or whatever. But I, I agree 100%. I, I mean, I live with Glenn Hanlon in, in Vancouver. But Glenn wasn't a, a veteran or anything. I mean, I would have been better off living with a Dennis Kearns or someone, you know, who had, you know, was married and had children of his own. I think something like that would have made it a heck of a lot easier for me. I think Harry Neal would have enjoyed that a lot more too. So. Yeah, probably. <laughs> yeah, probably. <laughs> now, what I was going to ask you, Mike, because what were some of the cooler meetings of players or events that occurred over the first year for you? And actually, let's just take one step further. You're going to the Red Wings. Legendary team, you're you're at that age where you'd have known a lot of those legends from the '60s. They are hanging around the rink. They're there. They're they have been. They must have been somewhat inspirational to you to now cross paths with these guys who wore that sweater before you. Yeah, there were. I mean, uh, you know, just just even our general manager alone, Ted Lindsay, uh, the stories that he had, and and you know, he invited us over to his house for dinner. Uh, you know, always talking hockey and. He'd come into the dressing room and, and even to the, the, the last few days of his, of his life, the last few years of his life, he'd walk into the dressing room and, and just start training in the gym that we had in the back room. And and he still kept doing that all these years through the Scotty Bowman, Steve Eiserman era, uh, Lindstrom era. I mean, he, he just, it didn't matter because he was the, he was the guy that kind of, represented the red and white in, in Detroit. He represented the community, represented the team, and he was a real incredible professional through and through. And and he loved the game of hockey. So, you know, you meet someone like that and he takes you under his wing, even as your GM. Um, you know, you, you just have so much respect for that kind of a, a person and that kind of situation. So I, I, lear I learned a lot from, from, from Ted Lindsay. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of other players. I'm sure, Rick, you've experienced different things like that as well. Yeah, I mean, well, I've, I've met Ted Lindsay a couple of times, and I got to tell you, you're absolutely bang on with, with everything you said, Mike. And, and I mean, that's why that uh, award that's voted on by the players for the MVP, so to speak, is called the Ted Lindsay Award because he embodied – what it was to be a professional and an NHL player, I think more than anybody else uh, for many, many years. And, and like you said, even after he was finished playing, he was still a big part of it. And uh, so I, and I got to meet him a few times, wonderful individual. Yeah. And I think one of the other things too, Mike was uh, with yeah. regards to a guy like Ted Lindsay, he was very selfless. 
Yeah. You know, he, he was a true professional himself and he always did all the things he needed to do pre to prepare himself and but yet would go out of his way to make sure his teammates were able to play and and you know you talk about that award and that's that's that was one of the greatest things that the nhl could have done is, is create an award and name it after the ted you know ted Lindsay because of you know how he was and how important he was to his team and his teammates and then you know those those things like that you know you don't forget with even with Detroit, and then you go to a team like Buffalo, and you work, you play with a, a player like Gilbert Perrault, and here's another true professional. I call him I call him the master of of the game because he was just so good in every aspect, uh, but yet just such a funny guy, great guy to be around, um, and you learn learn so much from from individuals like this. Well, he's a guy we want to get into, so let's leading into that. That's a good segue. <laughs> Mike, you're, you're perfect for this. You know, this is a perfect segue leading into this. I mean, things are going well for you individually as a player in Detroit. The team was floundering, low attendance. You must have been hearing some changes were coming possibly, including maybe ownership, management, all those things. Then December the 2nd, 1981, the three words players dread to hear, and it ain't it's your round. It's rather we've traded you. Yeah. Did you see that coming your way, or would you just – get caught totally off guard. You know what? I, I knew that there was going to be a trade. I didn't know I was going to be the guy getting traded. And, uh, and the, and the funny part is, is when, when it happened, um, I was kind of excited and to a certain extent, because I'm going to a team that's got Jim Schoenfeld, Danny Gare, you know, Joe Perot. And then I find out I'm traded for Danny. <laughs> and the only guy, and the only guy that's going to be the receiver is, is Joe Perot. Well, I, I know of, you know, and, and so that caught me off guard. I said, oh, my God, I got traded for Danny Gare. I remember watching Danny Gare and Jim Schoenfeld when I was, when I was younger and, uh, you know, just some great players. But, uh, you know, so, yeah, it was, it was a, a, a definitely a, a change of life, a change of, you know, new experience. But, um, you know, Scotty Bowman was uh, looking for somebody to play with Joe Bear uh, that uh, was young and had, you know, my style of game, I guess, and, and uh, that's what I, that's what I brought to Buffalo. Well, I mean, did it take you got Dale McCourt and Brent Peterson with you in that trade, by the way? And just just to make you feel a little bit better, they must have done something right because, like, less than a year later, Detroit had new ownership, new GM, and all that stuff. So everything did get overhauled eventually. How long did it take you guys to fit in, and how was the reception? Because you guys got traded for a couple, as you pointed out, a couple of very popular guys, not only with the players but with the fans and Danny Gear and Jim Schoenfeld. Yeah, I mean, you had to earn. You had to earn it at the start. Uh, they weren't just going to switch over and like you because you got traded there. You had you had to earn your uh, your jersey and your your position every night, and uh, that's something that uh, you know I remember from my years with uh, you know Ted Lindsay. Uh, someone asked, he said, he told me one day, some you know someone asked Joe DiMaggio why you play hard each and every night. Every time you go out there, you work so hard. How come you work so hard, Joe? And uh, and he said, because some kid might be watching me play for the very first time, and and that stayed with me. So when I when I did go to, to Buffalo, I, I kind of you know you, you go back on things like that, uh, you draw from those kinds of uh, conversations, and uh, I didn't want to let anybody down in, in Buffalo. I didn't want anybody to think that they made a mistake. I wanted them to believe that they they did the right thing. So my intention was you know all good, uh, very positive. And um, you know, it, it, it was an it was a great opportunity because I met my 
my lifelong, uh, uh, how do I put this, mentor or, or idol, uh, if I could ever use that word, I should use that word, but, but Gilbert Perrault. Um, I used to be Gilbert Perrault on the streets in Sudbury playing ball hockey. Uh, I was number 11. I was Gilbert Perrault. I was stick handle through everybody and score a goal, and then I got a chance to play with my other <laughs> hero. And it, it, we still talk to this day. Uh, uh, there's not a, a, a couple months that go by before we, we chat on the line. He lives in Quebec. I live in Sudbury. It's great distance, but it's shortened up by a quick phone call or a Zoom call. Well, was he as laid back well, as everybody there. said he was? He 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 was laid back, but he was uh, the kind of the quiet force. You know, that's probably the best way that I can yeah. describe him. Uh, everybody always wondered, you know, how how come Gilbert was such a great skater? Like he was just so fluid. And, uh, and then one night, I couldn't I couldn't work out in the daytime. My uh, my wife was with the kids. We had something going on with the kids and. So I, I said, I'm going to go for a late night run. About 10 o'clock at night, I go for a run. I live about two miles from Gilbert Perot. And uh, here I am jogging on the street. And I, I look across and there's this guy coming. I said, that looks familiar, that guy. <laughs> and it's Gilbert Perot running at 1030 at night. And I said, Gilbert, what the hell are you doing? He says, uh, he says I, I always run at night. I said, what do you mean you always run at night? He says, well, yeah, because if I run in the daytime, too many people see me and they stop me for my autograph. He says, I can't get to work on it. <laughs> so, 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 you know, it's, it's like everything else, right? There's always a reason why great players are great. They, they, they do the work when no one else is watching. And, and that's, what, that's what I admired so much about a guy like Gilbert Perot. You know, you look at uh, Guy Lafleur, and everybody says, well, yeah, it was, I can't believe Guy Lafleur." Uh, you know, smoked a pack of cigarettes every day or whatever. And yeah, but uh, I don't know if you know the other part, but uh, Guy Lafleur was one of the first guys that used to jog 10 miles a day to, to train so he would have the stamina and endurance to play, you know, in the last minute of a shift or the last minute of a game and still play the way he did when he started the game. So, you know, there's always a reason why great players are great. Well, there was uh, – you mentioned Guy Lafleur, and I, I remember – uh, during the World Juniors, we got to watch a lot of their practices because we were based in Montreal. In fact, we dressed in their weight room. And, uh, I mean, I couldn't believe in their practices. I mean, it was only 45, 50 minutes, but it was nonstop, nonstop. And Guy Lafleur never was never behind anybody. Uh, so he must have been working a little bit extra off the ice, I would imagine. Uh, but, you know, yeah, I mean, everybody talks about – Oh, he had a cigarette between periods. Yeah, but what about all the other work that he puts into into his game and everything else to be the great one of the greatest right wingers of all time? Yeah. I mean, I don't think everybody you know thinks about those types of things because that just doesn't come to you. You have to work for it. Yeah. No, and then you you look at some of the players even nowadays, the guys that are you know on to some new trends of of, of training. Um, you know, uh, some of the stuff that they show Crosby doing, uh, some of the things that they show um, uh, LeBron James doing, uh, you know, the intentional the intentional workouts where they're broken down into parts, you know, like they, uh, you, you, you know, it's not just up and down the court, it's just standing in a certain spot on that court and, and throwing that ball into the hoop. And, you know, it, it develops muscle memory and, and so on. But um, there's, there's different types of training for, you know, for everyone. 
Uh, I'm not going to say that one is, is better than the other, but I know that uh, to each his own. And uh, th that's a big part of, of being a professional nowadays because everybody's training. So you have to make sure you train as well. <laughs> now, Mike, you wore the same with the same. Oh, <laughs> uh, walk us through the day you got renamed captain. And once you did, did you feel the added responsibility with the main letter on your sweater? I mean, I know you've you've just addressed the fact that you never want to let anybody down, so you never want to take a shift off, and it looks like you never did. Squid, I know you felt the pressure to live up to the expectations at su such a young age. This is one for both you guys. Mike? Yeah, I, th I think you feel a sense of responsibility. You know, you, you've seen other players uh, handle it. Um, I was a, a captain in junior, so I knew what that felt like. Um, you know, then you go to Detroit, you, you kind of see how uh, some of the other players, you know, held that role. Um, then you go to uh, Buffalo and you see a player like, uh, you know, I, and then growing up too, I, we watched a lot of Toronto Maple Leaf games. We saw Daryl Sittler, we saw Davey Keon, how they, George Armstrong, how they did it. Um, you know, when it came time to go to Buffalo, you know, I watched a lot of Gilbert Perot and, and how he handled certain situations. Uh, Lindy Ruff became one of our captains, and, and he was a different kind of a captain. He was a fiery guy, in-your-face guy, uh, lead-by-example kind of guy, and, and more of a real physical presence uh, in the ice and, and changed games just because of his physical play, his tenacity, never-quit attitude. And so you kind of draw from everybody. And then, you know, obviously when I, when I got the opportunity to, to be a captain, I, I wanted to make everyone proud. Obviously, you wanted to be everyone's captain. You don't want to just be captain for part of the team. So you have to kind of listen to everybody and, and work with everyone everyone on the team. You have to develop relationships. Uh, they have to know that you care. And uh, if they know you care, then they're going to care as well. And, and, and that's what we tried to, to bring together with our with our team in Buffalo. That's great. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, like Mike said, I, you look at the people around you when you come into the league. Like I was, you know, Dennis Kearns and guys like that in Vancouver, and then I get to Toronto, and you, know, you got Daryl Sittler and, and guys like that. So you, you kind of watch what everybody does, what these guys do, and then you, you try to be as good as them. And, and that, you know, that says a lot when, when you're the captain. It, it's very difficult, but – uh, you know, like Mike said, you, you just you don't want to disappoint anybody. Like I can remember when I came to Buffalo, and Mike and his family, they, they they went out of their way to look after Joyce and I, and show Joyce where the schools were, where everything was. That's what a captain does. He, you know, and then like I said, I saw Daryl taking guys to lunch and talking to them. So those are things that I did when I was captain. And then you know, I go to Buffalo and. Lo and behold, Mike just jumps right in and, and you know, we, we didn't even have to really do anything. Mike, his family was there for us and, and, you know, and that's what he did with everybody. And uh, I, I think that those are the things you need to do as a captain. You got to you gotta make everybody kind of feel comfortable. And, and uh, Mike certainly did a great job of that in, in Buffalo. Well, you know what? You still see it to this day, like, you know, having two boys – you know, at that level, both of them got traded already. And, and uh, you know, that's one of the remarks that I still hear from them. Like, you know, uh, yeah, when they came uh, uh, to the new city, uh, nobody was at the airport to pick them up. They told me to take a cab to the to the, to the hotel or whatever. <laughs> it's like, geez, I didn't, just didn't quite feel welcomed, you know. <laughs> 
But when, when someone's there, they, they go the extra mile, they, they do the extra thing that, that makes you feel wanted and cared for. And, and you know, you, when you feel that way, you always give back tenfold. And uh, so, yeah, it's a very important uh, part of, uh, um, of the role of the captain, but now it's become more part of the leadership group on the team. You know, it's not, it's, it's a leadership by committee, which, which I think is even more important because you got more guys, you know, watching your back and, and looking out to help and, and chip in and be a part of that leadership group that takes so much pride in, in the, the success of the team. Well, you can tell the boys, at least they weren't Gerard Gallant. You get shown the bums rush out the back door and sit here, make your way to the airport. Right, right. Grab your ticket at the airport. We'll see you later. Now, coaching, coaching, is, coaching is a tough thing. Coaching. That's, a, that's a little different. The, um, but, Mike, I was going to say to you now, Buffalo had a good team. They just couldn't get to that next level. You know when that happens, you know change is going to come at some point because, you know, teams almost flatline and they get to that level. You get moved to Toronto. Now, moving to Toronto, you're close to your hometown. Were you a little apprehensive moving to the city, knowing even though the team is in transition, expectations are going to be very high? Yeah, I mean, you know what? It was uh, obviously tough to be traded from from Buffalo. But, uh, it, you know, when I found out that I was going to Toronto, I was actually relieved to a certain extent just because uh, if I'm going to get traded from Buffalo, I want to go somewhere where at least – um, my family can see me or, you know, uh, it, it's a team that I kind of at one point in my career might, might have wanted to, to, to play for. And uh, so it didn't take very long to get kind of into the idea of it. And, uh, you know, I, I, I welcomed it. Uh, obviously, you can't turn back the clock, but, uh, you know, you, you welcome the opportunity. And I tried to you know, make the best of my opportunity with, with the Leafs while I was there. It, it, it was a little bit in disarray when I first got there. Um, there was a lot of turmoil that, that was going on with the team. And, uh, you know, that, that took a little time to, to heal. And a lot of changes had to take place for, for that to happen. Sometimes you can't, sometimes you can't heal what's the damage that was done. And, and so some changes had to be made on the team to create that unity. Um, Cliff Fletcher came in and made some incredible moves that uh, that flourished. Well, one in particular everybody will talk about for life as a Leaf fan is the Gilmore coming to Toronto from Calgary and that massive trade. So what what did you know about Gilmore besides playing against him a few times a year when he came in to the Toronto Maple Leaf organization? Yeah, I, I think I think there was more than that one, but you know, I, I you know the thing with Dougie was this, just his tenacity. You know, like we needed a, a, a centerman that could. You know, put some numbers up and uh, and uh, you know play a, a any style of game and whoever thought this little guy from from Kingston would be that guy you know like he, he comes in and and uh, it's just relentless and and we needed that kind of player we needed that kind of drive and uh, and you know not only that but then you got Glenn Anderson coming in from uh, from Edmonton with uh, Grant Fuhrer and then you got Jamie McCowan coming yep. in. Uh, there's a whole bunch of changes that, that were made that really uh, helped us kind of get over that, that hump. I think, I think Rick, when you were there, uh, there weren't a whole lot of captains on that team. But when I was there, there was a slew of guys that were former captains of different teams they played for. So we had a, a whole different level of leadership, you know. Um, and, I, and then with Padre coming in, he was just – 
you know, like you look at uh, you look at the Montreal goalie this year, Carey Price, coming back fresh off an injury and playing incredible in the playoffs, and that kind of reminded me of uh, of what uh, Pavel did with with us. You know, he he was a fresh guy. He he was uh, unknown, and uh, you know he was never going to quit on a puck, and it gave us every opportunity to, to win. He also had Dave Anderchuk there too. Yep. I, I don't think that hurt a little bit. Where no. he could, I've never seen a guy like him score goals like him in front of the net. I've seen him. I, I believe you were there in Buffalo one night. He got knocked down in the slot. The puck, the rebound came out. He was on his knees. He he reached out with his stick, pulled the puck in, and roofed it bar down <laughs> on his knees in the slot. And I'm thinking, holy cow! Like. This guy's pretty damn talented. And he goes to Toronto and scores 50 goals. And, uh, you know, you guys almost get to the Stanley Cup final. And uh, uh, I thought that was pretty cool. And, of course, Dave Dave's a pretty cool guy. And uh, uh, I remember him sitting beside me in the dressing room in Buffalo. And, and we had a lot of laughs together. And uh, he was a funny, funny, funny man. He's, he still is a funny man. <laughs> <laughs> I ran into him, uh, I think, a couple of years ago at the game in in Toronto, and uh, I, I, you know, I I played with Dave for quite a few years in Buffalo, and um, he was a rookie then, obviously coming in, um, and uh, like you said, Rick, he, he can find pucks ten feet away from him and, oh. and corral them in. So one, there was a movie at that time, Clint Eastwood, uh, with his orangutan called Clyde. I don't know if you remember. Every which, every which way but loose, I think, was the name of the movie. That's anyway, uh, when he did that, I said, holy God. I said, you just like that Clyde on that, you know, that movie. With so that became his nickname. I, that stuck. The guys loved it. So we, we used to call him Clyde. Oh, my God. He just, just died. Every time I look at him, I just start laughing. He's just such a great guy. Well, you guys had a magical run there for – Maple Leaf fans haven't seen a lot of this over the years between 92 and 93 when all these pieces were all coming together how long before you guys were sitting in the room realizing that this all this stuff coming together there's a bit of a game changer coming here and we've got a real shot and then add sort of the influence of Pat Burns to all of that as well well I think Pat was the special key for for all of us I think you know we had a a, a team that needed to come together and we needed uh, somebody that could you know, grab the bull by the horns. And uh, one of the things that I'll always remember with Pat and something I tried to take with myself over my years of coaching as well is, is you got to know who's playing that night. And, and some of the greatest coaches sometimes, you know, will let a player keep going, even though he, he's not playing really well or, and, and keep giving him that, that ice time. There's a time and place to do that. But if a player is not going in that first period, he always wanted to know who's going, who's going tonight. And, um, and if you weren't going, then you'd be either moved down or moved up, depending on who was going better than you or if you were going better than someone else. So if you wanted to play with Doug Gilmore, uh, then you had to hope that one of the guys, not hope, but you had to see one yeah. of those guys yeah. not play as well or not be going that night because that would be the motivation for them to get going. Hey, you know, I, I just lost my spot. That must mean that I'm not going. I got to refocus here, reset, get, get out there and, and be better. So uh, that, that was one of the keys, I think, for us as a team, um, you know, that, that uh, Burns inspired uh, within us that uh, if we weren't going to perform in any one minute of that game, we were going to be dropped. It didn't matter who you were. 
it didn't matter what time of the game it was. He, he wanted your best all the time. He expected you to be a professional, and, and he, he got it out of us. He got the most out of us that I think anybody could. The funny, it's funny you mentioned that, Mike, because Mike Keenan was like that. <laughs> In the first period, it was like he always – who's going, who's not going? Yeah. Unfortunately for me, every night I wasn't going apparently. So <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> but but it got me to Buffalo, so I was pretty happy about it. Even though it was the day after Christmas, not early December, but the day after Christmas, and I didn't even get there in time for the game that night. But uh, but yeah, so I, I you know what it got me to Buffalo, gave me a little bit of a new lease on my NHL career and. And and I loved I loved it in Buffalo. I really did. I loved the players that I played with, the fans. I loved the whole area. Actually, it was a it was a great place to live. Yeah, you know, and Mike, you mentioned about uh, you know the early years and the you know the Stanley Cups and teams that were winning Stanley Cups. You have to remember our first year. There was a team by the name of New York Islanders. Yeah, uh, they won four in a row. You know, then then the Edmonton Oilers. They won four in a row. That's eight years, two teams of one Stanley yeah. Cup. You know? <laughs> so, so and then the Pittsburgh Penguins got going. They're Montreal Canadiens. You know? So, yeah, it wasn't uh, an easy go-around for any team in the NHL when those guys were. Uh, and then you look at the coaches they had. You know, you, you look at uh, with uh, Edmonton Oilers and Glenn Sather. Uh, you weren't going. You weren't playing. Didn't matter who you were, you know. And then if you looked at Al Arbor, you know, the way that he – got the best out of his players and, and, you know, created some incredible unity within those, those groups there. Um, you know, just great coaches doing the things that they needed to do, recognizing their players and, and knowing their players and knowing the buttons to push within that group. And uh, that's that, that, you know, bodes well for the, their success. Well, as our good friend, uh, Brian Burke always says, the game's 100 years old. There's now, well, there'll be now 32 teams. He said it when there was 31. There's only ever one winner every year, one parade. <laughs> doesn't matter. It's never changed in 100 years. Yeah. No matter how many teams, there's one parade. Yeah, no, and the greatest thing about our game, I mean, as much as every year you say, oh, my God, the playoffs, it can't, can't get any better than this. And all of a sudden, the next year rolls around, and, and it gets better and better and better. <laughs> and, uh, you know, there's just so much talent. There's so much skill. There's so much determination. Um you know, it, it, it's such a great game, and I'm still proud to be obviously, you know, a part of it at a different level. Um, and I'm very happy that uh, obviously, um, you know, I've got a couple of guys right now that are playing, and, and hopefully they have uh, the greatest success possible and, and stay healthy moving forward. Well, we want – go Mike, ahead. I think, I think you're right, but you know what? The league uh, – or the referees in particular took a lot of heat last year because of – things that weren't called in the playoffs and that sort of thing. What, what is your take on that? Because I know when we played, obviously, I mean, the regular season was like that, and then the playoffs got even worse. Uh, but, you know, what's your take on that? Because I, I, you know, I don't have a problem with it. I think the, the referees in the playoffs should let them play to a certain degree and let them figure out who's going to win and who's going to lose. Yeah. Um, you know what? There's a... Uh... There's two sides to that to that story, I believe. Um, I think if you're doing something that is a, a an attempt to injure, uh, you have to be dealt with right away. I, I don't, oh, you know. Yeah, yeah. And I know that yeah. there was something that happened in uh, New York with Washington right at the end of the season, yeah. and I don't believe it was dealt with properly. Um, and I think it should have been dealt much more severely 
because it was an attempt to injure. And, uh, you know, you, you, yes, the players, you know, have to protect themselves. And, you know, we've got fighting in the game, and that's great. But there's people that always go above and beyond uh, and go that little further, you know, a little bit further that need to be reprimanded so that they get reminded that you can't do that in the game. And if you do it again and again and again, you're out, you know. So, um, yeah, I mean, there's there's rules. We, we try to play within the rules. Obviously, the game is so fast that sometimes, you know, you get, you know, a, a situation that you can't help. Uh, but at the same time, uh, we need other people sometimes stepping in to govern uh, above above the referees. And, and I think in doing so, it allows the referees to do their job better. Yeah. I was going to say... Yeah, no, I, I'd have to agree with you on that. And I, yeah, I think you're right about the thing, the Washington, New York thing. Yeah. There should have been a bigger penalty on that, I believe. And, you know, things like that, yes, I, I totally agree. They got to take care of that. And, and get that out of the game because there's no place in the game for that. Uh, but you know what? I don't mind a, a real good hard hitting, uh, you know, even a few fights in the playoffs. And because I mean, there's emotion, it shows emotion. And you know what? It's a part of the game. I mean, that you, you look at football, hitting is a part of the game. If you don't hit, you don't have any defense. Um, at the NHL level, everybody hits. You know, and and whether you're a scorer or not, you better be making physical contact because that's that's part of the game that either is going to help you to get you know through a team in the playoffs or uh, or not. And I think that that's part of the game where uh, a lot of kids have to learn. <clears throat> you know, sometimes they're so skilled they can go through a team and and score these great goals, but uh, they've never been against you know a real strong defense. A group or a tandem or a foursome where you know you're not just going up against the top pair you're going up against the top pair and then their defensive pair and then you know uh, uh, just a, a, a much more depth on their defense so you know if you're a scorer in junior you could you might be up against their weakest pair but if you're a, a scorer in the NHL you're going to be up against some pretty good defensemen and defensive forwards most of the night well, just, just keeping that train of thought, let's move along with that. And, uh, you know, we appreciate your time you're taking with us, and we're going to probably overextend a little bit because we've got lots to go through with you. But, uh, the uh, coaching, how did the coaching come about, Mike? You know what? I, at the end of my career, I was uh, in Toronto, and I, I kind of took a mindset where, um, you know, my role, uh, as expressed to me by, by Cliff Fletcher as well, that, you know, part of me getting another contract was to help a lot of the young kids and, you know, help them uh, play their game and, and bring them along. So that that became a part of my, my character as an individual and in my game. Um, you know, a pretty empathetic guy that I was. I, I always care for people around me as well, so that made it a lot easier. Um, and then going to Florida, uh, you know, um, working with uh, Roger Nielsen, and, and the staff there, uh, my former teammate, Lindy Ruff, was there. And we had a lot of young guys on the team. Um, and and that was that became my role there as well, too. I remember one night, one of the guys reminded me a couple of years ago. He said, I still remember, he says, you came into the dressing room after the first, after the second period. He says, guys, he says, I've already played 10 minutes. And I should be playing 10 minutes at my age after two periods. So somebody's not doing their job. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, so they knew they had to get their asses going because I was coming down on them. 
so yeah, so um, then I, I was coached by uh, Tom Watt my first year in uh, Toronto. And in 1980, Tom Watt was the coach of the Canadian Olympic team uh, that was helping out in the summer training. And so I got to know him a little bit there. And then uh, we, we, you know, worked well together in, in Toronto as a player and coach. Uh, and then he took uh, the head coaching job with the Baby Leafs in St. John's, Newfoundland. Yeah. And so I was out of hockey for, I retired for about three quarters of a year. And uh, I got a call from uh, Bill Waters and asked me if I'd be interested in working with uh, Tom Watt in, in Newfoundland to finish the, to, you know, start the next season. So, um, so I said, yeah, I, I was ready for something different. And uh, I went out to St. John's Newfoundland and I spent uh, almost uh, three quarters of a season there. And at, at the end of the year in Toronto, uh, they relieved Pat Burns and uh, they called me up to help with uh, with the team at that point. The biggest, the biggest adjustment, adjustment between, between coaching, coaching and playing. And playing playing is, is about you as an individual. Coaching is about everyone else. And, and you really have to know what the needs of everyone else on the team is and how to get them from where they're at to where you want them to be and where they and where they think they can't get to because a lot of them, um, your expectations have to be higher for the player than the player himself. And I think that when a coach um, coaches down to a player, I don't think you're going to get the best out of a player or the team. I think the coach has to raise all the expectations, all the standards and uh, expect, you know, especially players at, at the elite level, to be elite both on and off the ice. And I think that once you establish that, that's the standard that you can never draw back from. So I, I think those are the things that make great coaches. And, you know, I, I, I took great pride in my coaching when I, when I did, and I still do now with our Paralympic team. It's something different. It allows me a little more freedom to um, get away from the game and enjoy my nine grandchildren. So uh, it's worked out uh, the best for, for me. How many? Nine. nine. Did you say nine? nine? Yeah. <laughs> oh wow. Yeah. Oh time, boy, you got your you, you have your hands full there. <laughs> time flies. Time flies, man. Kids are busy. Well, let me set this question up for both you guys here. It's been it's been often said to us in the show as a player, this is a difference between coaching and playing. And you you identified it, Mike, as being an individual as opposed to dealing with twenty three different personalities. As a player, you can go and do something to change a game: goal, fight, hit, something. Whereas as a coach, you can only guide. Mentally, that must be very challenging and really lets a coach know really quickly whether he can adapt to that role or not. I mean, Squid, you and I have gone through this many times, but that is one of got to be one of the most difficult challenges going from playing to coaching. Mike? Well, I think one of the things you have to identify on your team is, first of all, what kind of a team do you want to be and what kind of team do you have? And then putting players in certain roles to be able to be successful in the capacity that you're trying to play at. So I think those are the keys for, for a coach where, you know, you, you've got certain, uh, you know, a certain group of players that you're, you're going to be dealing with, especially at the American hockey league level. Uh, you're, you're trying to groom players for certain roles for the NHL level. And, uh, uh, you, your job is to, you know, do all the things that you need to do and not take a step backwards, you know? So you have to identify roles of what it's going to take for your team to win. You know, you've got players in those capacities. 
They've got a certain amount of minutes that they've got to be able to play at the highest level that they can. And your job is to find out, is that player doing that job? Is he doing his role? Is he playing those minutes that he needs to play? Because you only have a certain amount of minutes in the game. And, um, and if he's not, then he has to be stepped down or you got to really work with him to get him back to the level that he needs to be at so he can be at 100% in those, say, 15 minutes or, or 17 minutes or, or 13 minutes, whatever the case may be for that role. It's great. Yeah, it's, uh, it can be frustrating. There's no question, I think, the transition from being a player to a coach. But, again, you got to look at, like Mike says, there's a lot of different scenarios. I, my first job was in the ECHL. Well, you know, back then, primarily, we weren't sending a whole lot of guys to the NHL. It wasn't a, really a de- development league. It was more, you know, win and bring people into the building so that you can make money. And uh, so that's what that kind of was for me. But then all of a sudden you go to St. John New Brunswick and your Calgary's AHL affiliate. Well, now, now your role changes a little bit. Now yeah. it's like, okay, now I got to teach. Now I got to teach these guys, not just stuff on the ice, but off the ice and how to, how to you know, look after yourself, how to uh, hold yourself, how to conduct yourself. I mean, there's a lot of things you got to do. And I, I had some really good players down there, uh, Marty St. Louis and guys like that. I mean, that, that kind of helped a little bit. But boy, oh boy, I'll tell you, it's, it, it's not easy because I got, you know, seven, eight guys that were drafted in the top two or three rounds. And my job is to get them to the National Hockey League as quickly as I can. So it, it's, you know, it's a pretty, it's a very difficult job when you get to that level. Yeah. No question. It's uh, <clears throat> there's uh, there's there's enough pressure on the players knowing that there's expectations, you know, and and so every day they're like, okay, coach, what do what do I have to do now? What what do, what more do I need, you know? And uh, well, first of all, time, because nothing can rush time, you know, and uh, and and keep playing the game that you're, you know, that that you can play best, and and everything else falls into place. I mean. You know, sometimes you've got a player just because he hasn't made it in the first year or two, um, but still is, is driven, still is a hardworking guy, still, you know, can be motivated to, to change a certain part of his game or learn something different, uh, a skill in the game. You're never too old to learn something new. You're never too, uh, you know, slow to learn to get quicker and train, train smarter. There's always players in the NHL that – you know, even my own kids are learning that as time goes by, there's different kinds of training they need to do. Instead of endurance stuff, they got to do stuff that makes them faster in a shorter amount of space, you know. So, yeah, there's always adjustments that you can make, especially with all the new technology that's out there. Um, and don't be afraid to try things. That's the key. Well, I was going to say to you now, this may no, be look, look, oh. Hold on. Before, Mike, just one sec. That yeah, last no, picture, no. is that not 3X Sudbury Wolves? In that last picture we just saw. <laughs> it is too. Those two guys, Dave Ferris. Randy Dave Ferris, they were they were both defense pairs in, in Sudbury. Yeah, we have, like I said, we had a we had a pretty good team in Sudbury when I my first year here. Uh, someone told me that that uh, that nineteen of the twenty or twenty one guys that we had on that team ended up turning pro at some form or some level. Wow. And the guy that told me 
was a guy that had still been working in the game, Eric Niskanen, I think it was his name, and he was working uh, for one of the hockey equipment companies. So in, in essence, Eric worked longer in the business of hockey than all of us. You know, and he's the guy that told us, well, 19 guys made it, not him. Now, this might be an unfair question, but you coach at all three levels, the NHL, AHL, and junior. And even back in your hometown, Sudbury, maybe talk about the difference between the three and the level you, you, you enjoyed coaching the most. You know what? Uh, your, your role is a little bit different in each one. Um, you know, I, I think in junior, your role is to get everyone comfortable, uh, get them, you know, to understand the, the workload because a lot of them don't understand, like, you know, you're playing so many games and you're practicing every day. Um, you're traveling. Uh, there, there's so much to get used to. And then you've got school, you know, uh, you've got a home life and usually it's with a billet family. So there's so many things to get used to. And that's maybe one of the things that I would say to anyone that's, that's coaching or an assistant coach or even parents that are involved with their kids and juniors, just make sure that, that, they're, com they're, they're comfortable in their environment. They, they know and understand the workload, that they can handle it because it's a really important part of the development phase. Um, I'll never forget, we had a player uh, my first year in, in uh, Sudbury. Uh, his name was Adam McQuaid. And, uh, you know, Adam was a really good student and hardworking guy and, you know, really dedicated and wanted to be a pro in the worst way, but he's 16 years old coming from, from um, the PEI. Um, and yeah, so, you know, um, so here we are and, and he's going to school and, uh, we find out, find out that he took on such a big wor uh, uh, workload at school that he couldn't get all his homework done. He couldn't keep up and he was struggling and it affected everything. It affected his mentality. It affected his game. And so we got him to talk to our, uh, scholastic, uh, you know, um, counselor and, um, uh, they were able to work some things out. Uh, lighten the load a little bit early on so he could just kind of catch his breath. And then all of a sudden, he was in about a week, he was like a new man. And, you know, the rest is history. He turns into a great pro and, and uh, you know, wins the Stanley Cup with the Boston Bruins and, you know, just retired recently. Now he's working as a as a skill instructor with um, with the Boston Bruins. Um, we just got he, also, he also drafted, drafted my son when he was in Sudbury, Mike Pitt. And it was funny. And it was a real funny thing because it was a phone draft. And I remember, I think Craig Hartsburg was right after you, I think, with Sault Ste. Marie. So Mike calls me and says, what's Rick or what's Justin doing? I said, well, he's going to the U.S. program for a year at least. I don't know what he's going to do after that. Okay, I'm going to draft him anyway. So I said, okay. Uh, then all of a sudden I hang up. Phone rings. It's Craig Hartsburg. What's Justin doing? Because I'm going to take him with my next pick. And I said, well, I think you're too late because I think, I think Mike's going to take him in Sudbury. <laughs> well, we went up there, and, and you know what? I I mean, for me, being having a guy that went and played junior, you know, some part of me wanted him to go play junior, but you know what? He's a smart kid. He said to me, he said, Dad, you know, I'm a pretty good player, but I'm not a star. And I don't know how much I'm going to play as a 16-year-old. If I go to the U.S. program, I'm going to get more ice time. I'm going to get a lot more time off ice training and that sort of thing. 
So he did the right thing, and then he got and ended up getting a full ride to Miami, Ohio. So, um, you know, it, part of me would have liked to have seen him go to junior, but I'm glad he went the route he did. Yeah, I mean, it's different strokes for everyone. Yeah. Uh, you know, sometimes a player also recognizes he's going to be a late bloomer. And your son, I remember, Justin, he grew so much in such a short time mm -hmm. that he was just gangly, you know, and, and he, he was going to find his way, but it would take more time. And uh, yeah. being an older player in, in college probably helped him, you know, to, to be the yeah. best he could be in because of that situation alone. So I think, you know, that, that worked out the best for him, obviously. We wish him the best. I hope he's doing well. Rick, uh, say hello to him yeah, for he's doing, he's doing fine. Awesome. awesome. <laughs> now, we, we got a couple of minutes left here, Mike. Let's get to a couple of things here. The Flana Leap. How did that get started? <laughs> you know what? Everyone shows jubilation of scoring a goal a different way. And, uh, <laughs> you know, I don't know. Like, it's just a crazy thing that started happening. And I did it just for a couple of big goals. And then all of a sudden it became a little bit of an automatic thing that I did. I don't, I can't even explain it. I could never do it today. No way. <laughs> now here's a question for you. Did you ever hurt yourself doing it? Um, no, but I hurt a couple of people around me. <laughs> <laughs> I, I used to have this half stick swing when I did it. It was like, Oh God. Anyway. Well, we've got one. Now we're going to test your memory here. Do you remember that? You, uh, you're not going to remember this. You may remember the event, but the night of February 19th, 1989, you had a penalty shot against Glenn Hanlon. He stopped you. Then he did the leap. That bastard. <laughs> <laughs> I remember that. I remember that. I was skating away and I saw him at the corner of my eye and I looked back and I gave him the Italian malocchio. I gave him the evil eye. <laughs> what about the boys on the bench? Did they, they must have roused you pretty hard. School oh, my old crazy. teammates were laughing. My old teammates were like, it was embarrassing. <laughs> <laughs> well, that is a classic. Now, here, let's, go to, well, let's go the opposite way now. How emotional was it you watching your son Nick on you at the leap after scoring his first goal? Oh, it was exciting for sure, you know, to – to pay homage to your father after, you know, you scored one of the most important goals of your, your life to that point is, you know, getting your first NHL goal. And, you know, that, that uh, humbled me for sure. And uh, made me very proud to know that, uh, that, that they care about, you know, that you that much that they, they, they would do something like that. And then, you know, a couple of years later, Marcus does it. So and he did it with the Sabres. Yeah. It was unbelievable. <laughs> you know, so, yeah. And they even wrote a big story about it, which was pretty good. I, I think that that's pretty good. Um, now, have you ever had a chance to really let it sink in how special the accomplishments of not only yourself, but your two boys are, especially knowing how difficult it is, like just even get a look, never mind make it and to have the three of you succeed like you have. Yeah. I mean, you know what? It's a special uh, situation. Obviously there's other families that, that this has happened. Yeah, of um, you know, uh, I, I think that, um, it all comes down to, you know, you got to be lucky. There's no question about it. You got you have to have the right situation and, and, you know, things have to fall into place. You have to stay healthy. Um, there's been a lot of great players that, that have had the same opportunity, but then all of a sudden they've had sustained an injury or something, you know, outside of the game prevented them from pursuing hockey, uh, whether it's a job or family situation. So, you know what, like, um, uh, we're blessed. I feel we're, you know, I'm blessed with this opportunity. I have two girls that 
keep the boys in line, which is really important. Uh, <laughs> sisters are always there keeping the guys, hey, hey, hey. You know? But uh, so they, they keep them humble. They keep them grounded. And uh, and they, uh, they're they doing really well. I'm really happy with how, not only how they play, but I'm really pleased to see how they care about the community and the people around them as well. I think it's, it's important that they give some of their time to uh, different causes. And, and they've, got, they've done that and they're still going to keep doing that. Well, here's a question for both of you. Now, like, do you think Nick, who was leading the wave in front of Marcus, was given a little more room to fall down as his game advanced in his early years because he was your son with an NHL pedigree? Then, of course, Marcus has said, come along later. Or do you think that maybe they're judged a little harder because they were the son of an NHL player? And so, Rick, you went through this with Justin. Yeah, I never gave him much thought. I just, yeah, I think, you, you know, you got to make decisions on their merit. Um, you know, I think that, uh, you, you know, what you can do with some players and what you can't do with other players, you know, and I think that, uh, with Nick, I knew that he was more talented than he was worker and he had to become a better worker to catch up with his talent. So we kind of tried to keep pushing him in the, in the work ethic and the dedication part. So then, you know, now I see him as a, a grown man and, you know, it's a hundred percent in both areas. You know, he, he has he's taken the last two months to heal up from his injury in Toronto, and but he did everything that he needed to do to to, to make sure it happened because he he wants to come back and, and play and and be better than than he's ever been. Squid, you went through it. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, it's all about opportunity too, and then when you do get that opportunity, taking advantage of it, and you know, Nick and Marcus both had a great opportunity that, that they came in, but then they earned that, you know, once, once you get the opportunity, it's not over. I mean, you've got to grab that opportunity and you got to take a hold of it and, and make it work, you know, and, and, you know, it's not sour grapes or anything, but I, but I look at my son and, you know, not that I don't, that I think he would have been a great NHL player or anything, but he never had the opportunity in a national hockey league. He played about 300 games in the American Hockey League, primarily fourth line, you know, go out, bang, crash, that sort of thing, which he did very well. But unfortunately, you're not gonna you're not gonna stick around in the American League or the NHL that long if that's what if that's the only thing you're doing. So he didn't get the opportunity to, to you know get there and and then let them see what he could do. So. But you know what? He he's happy with it. He he's fine with it. He's given everything he's got, and you know, as long as he's happy and and you know, likes doing what he's doing, playing where he's playing, I don't have a problem with it. Well, where I was really going with it for you guys was that, that anytime an NHL player's son is on the ice, people immediately take notice, and they can be really cruel for all kinds of reasons, which are mostly jealousy, and that's really where. And if a kid is strong enough to overcome that. He can really go leaps and bounds, but sometimes it could be hard on kids too, and the families. Yeah, I, I think you well, just have you have to be honest with the situation. There's no question about that. If your kid's not good enough to play, then you can't put him on the ice. You have to treat your kid like you do everybody else, and you treat everybody else like you do your kid. If, if you're the coach, you know you're, you're in a decision-making uh, position. You have to be respectful of everyone else on that team, and you have to earn the respect of the parents and everybody that's watching you. Uh, so if you, you know, you, you do something that, you know, isn't, you know, 
there's no reason to do it. You can't do it. You know, if there's someone didn't earn it, the opportunity to play, then you can't, you can't put them on the ice. You can't give them the opportunities that you normally would someone that's committed. You know, I, I, I just coached, um, I, I ran a couple of practices here locally in Subria. I'm sure it's no different anywhere else. I coached um, a practice for uh, 16-year-old kids, and I coached a practice for 15-year-old kids. And uh, these are like the top players in the, in the northern area. And uh, looking at the two groups, um, the 16-year-old players, you can tell that COVID has affected them because they are not developed the way that 16-year-old players should be developed. And they've missed a lot of hockey. They've missed a lot of opportunity. And the 15-year-old kids, they haven't missed as much. Plus, they weren't in that 15, 16 year yet where they're great development opportunities. You know, those are the moments where you can train and gain muscle and, you know, so gain your speed and, and do things at a higher uh, pace. So they're not going to be as affected, but they still are affected. And so that's what I say. Like these kids now, because of COVID, have missed this kind of short window of opportunity to really start developing. And they've got to, if they really want it, I think that, that group has to, has to develop really, really hard. Like they, they've got to really apply themselves if they want to pursue an opportunity at the, uh, the next levels. And I feel bad for them, you know, because it's not fair. Rick? Yeah, no, I, I mean, I agree. I, I think of all the kids, like even 12-year-olds and 13-year-olds that are aspiring to probably play major junior or get or go to college uh, on a scholarship. And, I mean, they, they've missed a lot of hockey, man. It's like, I mean, it's it's got to be very difficult on them and the parents uh, as well. I mean, I can't even imagine, uh, you know, I mean, I remember – Last when when it happened and my son's season was cut short, came home for four and a half months, and then I didn't even realize it until I heard him on a podcast in Fort Wayne last year, and he said, "You know, that's the longest I've ever been home." He said since I left home when I was sixteen years old, and I I started thinking about it, and I went, "Gosh, you know what? Come to think of it, he never came home until June, the end of June, yeah. and then he was gone." late August, early September, every single year. Right. You know, so he was yeah. right. That, that was the longest. And that, that was probably, uh, that was very difficult for him too. I mean, he trained here as much as he possibly could. But I, I got to tell you, that that affects those kids and especially those young kids that just haven't, well, they haven't played in, you know, in about a year and a half. Yeah. And that, that's got to be very difficult. Yeah, no question. Well, I was going to say, guys, it's been great. We've gone over our limit. Mike, oh, it's over already. <laughs> yeah. Well, we didn't even get. We didn't even, we didn't even get. Well, actually, we got the squid. We got to get him with one more. Is it, is it, is it, is it midnight yet? It, we got to get you, uh, Mikey. We got to get you one more here. Some of the funny guys you play with pranks. Now, you play with one of the Hall of Fame pranksters of all time in Doug Gilmore. Now, first off, did he ever get you? And maybe one of the one of the best pranks you've seen over the years. If anybody says that Doug Gilmore did not get him, they're lying. <laughs> they're lying. <laughs> God, he's the worst. The worst. <laughs> Never ends. No, uh, but but he he got as good as he gave. You know, we made sure of that. You thought uh, you got him back? Well, okay. Yeah, I mean, Lindy Lindy Ruff was for me. I think the all time greatest prankster. 
he would. Uh, he was I think good, he, yeah. he's, he used to think about stupid things to do in his sleep. You know, I'll never forget. He used to. So anybody that used to come new to our team, anybody that was traded, he would he would uh, sew their zipper, their XYZ zipper, in their jeans all the way down to the bottom. And uh, I'll never forget one of the guys came in from Edmonton, and um, he's he's putting his clothes on in the, uh, the change room afterwards, and you know he's looking down, he's playing down there trying to get his zipper up. And he, <laughs> there's no way he's ever going to get his zipper up. It's literally down. So we all knew this, right? Because Lindy told us. So then he goes into the bathroom stall, and he didn't want anybody to see how embarrassed he was. He couldn't get a zipper up. So he's in the bathroom stall trying to get a zipper up. Well, we all move into the bathroom, about 15 guys, all around the stall, and we're all looking down and laughing our asses off. <laughs> he looks up. He says, you bastards. <laughs> That's a pretty good one. Yeah. Oh, God. Mike, I don't, remember, I, don't, I don't remember that bathroom being able to hold 15 people. <laughs> <laughs> the stall caved in. <laughs> well, listen, uh, Mike, we want to thank you so much for joining us today. It's been very enlightening, very great uh, to have you on, and uh, you give us some great stuff, and uh, just we can't thank you enough. And good luck with the endeavors moving forward with the Olympic team. Uh, we think that's fantastic. And as I said, anything we can ever do to help, please uh, let us know. Thank you very much. Thanks, Rick. Thanks, Mike. Really appreciate it. Uh, Mike. On the show. Okay. 